and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture roundup. I'm Jelena Sofronievic. And I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Alex Andreu. This week we are delighted to be joined by writer, director, actor, singer, dancer and all-round luminous human being, the notorious RBB, Ricky Beadle Blair, to talk Riot Act, LGBTQ Plus History Month and a lifetime of activist art. Plus. Porn again. We watch Pam and Tommy, Disney Star's new series based on Pamela Anderson's leaked sex tape in the 90s. Yes, you heard right, it's on Disney Star in this country. Plus, scalpel please, we don our scrubs and watch med drama This Is Going To Hurt. Based on Adam Kay's book of the same name, it stars Ben Whishaw. And finally, what's that coming over the hill? We've been <laughs> to two new mega shows, Francis Bacon and Louise Bourgeois, for a special on Beasts in Art Corner. All this and more on this week's Culture Bunker. And welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to today's guest. Ricky Beadlebear is a man with a portfolio career, is what they call it. Although it's more exciting than that. The portfolio is spewing out. You're a choreographer, you're a designer, producer, performer, you work in film, theatre, television, and radio. You've written and directed over 40 plays, I believe, over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. With it includes several feature films. There are shorts, there are TV episodes and series, and you've won awards, including the Sony Award, the Los Angeles Outfest Screenwriting and Outstanding Achievement Awards. Welcome, Ricky. Hi, welcome. <laughs> That's an introduction. I'm surprised you've got time to fit us in, quite frankly. <laughs> you the whole show. So good things I do. How do you find the time, seriously, to fit all this stuff in? What is your secret power? I love. I just love what I do. I love what I do. I, I work with people I love. Or I try to. I go to bed thinking about my work and I wake up thinking about it because it's people. It's not like it. I'm not down a coal mine. It's just expressing myself and empowering other people to express themselves and learning from each other. So I just, I can't really go to bed unless I've created something or learned something. Have you ever had what they call in quotes, a proper job, Ricky? <laughs> I have, yes. When I was, I, I, I went to a hippie school um, mm. in the seventies, and um, so I could go where I wanted, go up, do what I wanted. I grew up in there was all these hippies that descended on Bermondsey and created this <laughs> wonderful school. And mm. um, so but the school was completely self-funded, so it collapsed early. So when I was fifteen, I went to work in a, as a clerk in an office for six months, but I got fired because I was too busy writing and and thinking and dreaming and not typing up letters properly, you know, at the time I got to the typewriter, I was writing songs and poems and stuff. So I had a proper job then. And, and of course, you have all your resting jobs, you know, you're right. cleaning people's houses and stuff like that. But but my, I still have a resting job that I've had for 30 years, which is every Sunday morning I teach an exercise class. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I teach aerobics, yeah. I am, it really is my own style. When I started, you know, I used to teach these classes Again, it's something I love doing because it's dancing, really, and, mm. and kind of uplifting people. And I'd start and I had my own, really my own quirky style and the music I use and the way I dress and everything. And I thought, well, I'll be lucky if I get, like, if I can get 10 regular people just to keep me going and help me feed my dog. Mm. And I got 100 people every single class. It was absolutely rammed. People had to book in advance. I had, I taught 22 classes a week at one point. All of which were, well, most of which were huge, and all of which were sold out. And it, I, it was a complete runaway. The people in, who don't know that I'm a writer, a director, or a yeah. or any of those things, 
they just think I'm an exercise teacher and they'll bump into me in the street and say, I used to come to your class 20 years ago. Yeah. It's been, it was a real gift and it actually helped me with my career because one of the classes I taught was in Shepherd's Bush. So it was near, oh, well, um, Latimer Rose and so it was near Shepherd's Bush and all these BBC people came. And when my writing career built, I find that people who were in my classes <laughs> were also in the meetings I was having oh, at BBC and Channel 4. And it really helped me get in the door. Fantastic. But you've blown your cover now because I want to go to your exercise <laughs> class as well as see all your shows, Ricky. <laughs> well, you know, it's been on Zoom. The whole, the whole, uh, every Sunday throughout uh, the pandemic, I didn't miss a, a, I didn't miss a day, including over Christmas for the whole first year. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's absolutely It's, a, it's a very small class now of people who just, uh, who just have been doing it forever. But it used to be this huge deal. Yeah, yeah, how fantastic. I love that. (laughs) We will talk to you more about your work and exactly what you do and why you're so fantastic after this quick plug from Yelena. Before we crack on, a tiny reminder. You can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without ads when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more every day. Plus all sorts of merchandise, reliable mugs and trendy shirts. All you have to do is search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. LGBTQ plus History Month has this tagline, claiming our past, celebrating our present, creating our future. I don't know that anyone's career encompasses this simple but difficult aim more than our guests. To call him a tireless campaigner would be to undervalue his contribution by suggesting it could somehow be tiring to him. It's just not true. From his award-winning first play, A to Z, written when he was 18, to the 1994 film Stonewall, his groundbreaking Channel 4 series Metrosexuality, his multiple stints at the Theatre Royal Stratford East, his patronage of equality organisations, his music, his dance, his fight for intersectional rights and participation of black pride, to even his show-stopping turn as a guest in a production of Strauss's Die (laughs) Mouse. Anyone who knows his output can see that this is not work in any pedestrian sense of the word, that he produces art much like we produce carbon dioxide when breathing out. It is my pleasure and my honour to welcome Ricky Beadle Blair to the bunker. Ricky, hello. Hi. (laughs) Let's start with your latest project, uh, Riot Act. It created and performed by Alexis Gregory and directed by you, which was probably one of the last theatre productions to tour properly just before the pandemic as part of our History Month in February 2019 and is now one of the first things to have been sort of reimagined as an online performance piece available on stream.theatre. Tell us about it. Uh, Alexis Gregory is, uh, I call him Lexicon, because he is just, from the very beginning, he was a very young actor who who wrote letters to me, as actors do, and um, and invited me to see his work and then started working with me on various shows. He's done some, some of my movies and stuff. So I've seen him grow from, you know, a, a great talent to an absolute force. Mm. He created this show um, where he decided to interview three activists through the years, one from the, basically from the late 60s or 70s, one from the 80s and one through the 90s. And um, they kind of cross over. And each of them are people who lived 
their their passion for LGBTQ plus equality and in various ways. One of them was at the the riot, the Stonewall riots in 1969 in New York, which is the, the uprising where mm. finally um, a, a very down low drag bar was being busted by the police. And instead of being pulled into the wagons, they decided to fight back. And this was the first time that there was civil disobedience from the very, usually very passive gay community. And that is why it happened in June 69, which is why June and July are the big pride months around the world to celebrate mm. that iconic uprising. Um, he interviewed someone who was there. He interviewed someone who was involved in ACT UP in the 80s, which was the group that fought against the ignorance and the apathy around people dying of AIDS. And they, again, lots of big social zaps and kissings and all kinds of things they did to get attention. And there, and also a drag artist called Lavinia Co-op, as in Lavinia Co-op, and, um, <laughs> who was, who, who, well, didn't really live in a co-op, lived in squats and, and was part of this amazing group called Blue Lips, who were kind of a radical drag group. They, they, they made drag and they were all, it kind of meshed with kind of clowning with those strong, uh, almost, uh, uh comedia de latte makeup and, um, lots of big musical numbers. And mm. it's super entertaining, but always with this edge underneath it. And they are still around. Lavinia is still amazing, you know, in the, quite aged and still performing and still letting the kids have it. And so Alexis becomes each of these characters. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of verbatim theatre. I think it's important and powerful, but I don't enjoy it as a director to work on that. So I like mm. scripts mm. and narrative. And Alexis is like, I, I adore Alexis. And he was like, would you direct this? And I'm like, mm, yeah. Oh. And so he, <laughs> he, well, let me just read it to you. So we went to Primrose Hill Park and I sat in the grass with a picnic and he performed it for me. And my jaw was on the grass. I was so mesmerized by what he'd created and what, how he'd interviewed them and how he'd edited it together and, the, and who they were and how he was embodying their different voices. And I just said, Alexis, that was just utterly amazing. Yes, 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 yes. And then my job was to help him edit it a bit more and push him in, in, in his already strong choices, but really just be a fanboy and just support him and making what, something that I've, every time I've watched it, it's like the first time. I, it's just so moving. I've seen him perform it to teenagers um, who sit there at his feet, rap to see these icons from the past and get their history and, and understand what, mm. uh, what pe- people have been through. And I've seen it with people, the age of the people in the, and the actual people themselves watching. My favourite kind of director, just a fanboy that encourages my choices. That, um, that's let, exactly, let's, that's exactly. <laughs> let's have a listen to a little taste of Riot Act. My first day in New York City was the day of the Stonewall Riots. There's something about drag. AIDS made us visible. And Judy Garland dying the week before. It was the perfect storm. You go clubbing and you take drugs. And there were people going past in their cars and they had guns. You were literally fighting for your life. Sex is a big drive. I finally found a home. Are you cold? Let's have a cup of tea. Do you want a herbal tea? Sometimes, as an older person, you couldn't give us The price of freedom is constant vigilance. We haven't been vigilant. 
I wanna live, I wanna survive. It's happening in America. You can use my real name. It's happening over here. Michael. Lavinia. Paul. Ricky, you said something in an interview many years ago that has stayed with me, that you create art when you don't know the answer to a question. If you did, you would just give us the answer. Art is your way of exploring the question. So what questions are you exploring now with Riot Act and with the rest of your work that's going on? What's the big theme for you right now? It's how do we find joy How do we fulfill ourselves as human beings? How do we face the darkness in order to accommodate it and not be overwhelmed by it? And how do we move towards the light in one another? How do we move beyond judgment? How do we move beyond fear? Mm. I'm not saying we should never have judgment or never have fear. Every emotion is valid. But which emotions do you want driving it? I'm I'm trying to kind of break down and, and split the atom of, of emotions, like really get down to what this is made of and the, and who we are. So that when we go and see ourselves in the film and the theatre, or I listen to the mm. radio, that the people say, people are, I, I want people to be surprised by how much they have in common with each other mm. and to be, and to love themselves more because they don't feel so alone. As I think when we feel under threat and we're alone, that's when we, we really get into, because uh, if you don't have a great relationship with yourself, you can't have a great relationship with anything else. Yeah, yeah. And so it's about people seeing us ourselves in each other. I've never taken a drug in my life. And so I love writing about people who take drugs. Wh- which like, will surprise, it, which will surprise anyone that's seen you perform. Because <laughs> <laughs> so you seem to drop <laughs> perpetually on them. Everybody always thinks I'm, you know, a, a, a real party boy, but I'm a real booky, uh, you know, uh, straight edge guy, I'm afraid. But that my work is the opposite. <laughs> There's a suggestion in Riot Act that AIDS interrupted a sort of chain of older generations in the queer community passing down culture, knowledge, history. And it's also my perception, and I don't know if you have the same one, that online dating apps have created another such interruption. That You know, searching for love for a queer person used to be a tricky business. And so there was always an older person, a sort of, it was like an unofficial mentoring program almost, that someone would from your sub-community would take you by the arm and show you the ropes. And that doesn't really happen anymore. I don't see it. How do we fix it? How do we how do we address these gaps in our history? It's very easy to take oneself for granted, right? I, I've had a few moments where an actor will say to me, oh, Ricky, you're the first black gay person I've, I've, I've ever really known. Mm. And they'll be maybe black and gay themselves. I think that's not true. You must know loads. And I don't know. There was no one to talk to. There was no one to, to look up to. And then I think, well, who did I look up to? And I realized, oh, well, there really wasn't anybody. It's a thing of being there for other people. And so um, I, I, I completely agree. There's this disconnect and there's a, a kind of a commoditization, like just show me the bits of your body that will do it for me and I'll respond to you. But really, there's nothing um, more important than our hearts and our minds and our presence mm-hmm. and our ears. And so I, you try and give those to as many people as possible because we, again, watching people watch right at, I realize how much these uh, young people often say that's where they went. They all, all those people passed away that yeah. we wanted to, to connect with. But I'm, I didn't pass away. I'm here. 
And um, and so I try to do that with all the work I do. Like when I host Black Pride, I understand that I'm there to be a cousin, uncle, brother, um, yeah. father to the 10,000 people that are in that space and so on and so forth. So I think that's the way to do it. We have to actually be mentors for each other. And if you're only 20, you can still be a mentor to somebody who's 19 or 17 or to mm, somebody yeah. your own age. Your first play, A to Z, won several accolades, including the Evening Standards Young Playwright Award. And I just wonder, did that create a weird pressure to concentrate on a sort of monorail career of writing plays when actually you wanted to do loads of different things? Well, going to the, my kind of hippie free school, that really freed me because I was basically when you're a child, you, you, you don't see anything like that. You just want to do what you want to do. And so um, as a child, I just wanted to, I just created. And fortunately, through my teenage education, I was able to retain that. It would be a lack of generosity to be less than I am. Mm. Um, I have something to offer. And so I've never been constricted, but the, but the, the pressure from outside has always been huge. People have always said, you should just focus on one thing and um, it confuses people. It's not good branding. You, I just don't want to listen to any of that. Mm. I have, I only have one job and that is to live my life and it's to live it as fully and as, as, as fulfillingly as I possibly can. And, um, and, the, and I don't owe anything to anybody else except uh, my best. And so, I mean, it's hard work because I don't want, I don't want to be, I want to be Michael Phelps. I want to be the best director that everybody's <laughs> working with and the best, you know, not, not kind of g- good at each thing. I want to be a great composer and a great actor and a great, um, uh, host and a, and a great choreographer. And yeah. so I have to give it my absolute all. And so I can't listen to voices like that. That yeah. all I'm hearing is their own limitations, and I'm here to free them from those limitations, not abide by them. Hmm. Now, metrosexuality, you'll get a kick out of this. It it is available to stream on 4OD, right? I now. love that. No, yeah, people I, have told me. Yeah, it's amazing. I watched an episode last night, and my fear was that it will have dated quite a lot. And it actually stands up really pl- in many ways. It's still quite subversive and quite progressive in in sort of the stuff that it says. But at the oh. time, you got into a lot of trouble with the right wing press. It's fair to say, yeah, they were going, you know, political political correctness gone mad, yeah. and and specifically, you were criticised for not including straight white middle class men yeah. in your narrative. In retrospect, looking back at that, does it feel like the first shots fired in what we now describe as the the, the culture wars? Yes, uh, it was a real lesson to me. Again, literally the theme tune of the show is it's all about love. At first, it was kind of a, a shock and assault when people were saying, what about me? Where's the white straight male? <laughs> but you know what? They A, there are lots of white straight middle class characters in that show. I did include them. It's just that they're not used to being the centre. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, leading characters they were, but they're used to being the leading character. And for any, anything less than the absolute pinnacle for them was erasure. And that was a really interesting thing to see. And, um, but again, they only want the same thing everybody else wants, which is to see themselves and to be centered. 
And so, and they've actually done a very good job of that. And even though it's irritating for everybody else, actually, I'm inspired by straight white middle class men who created narrative after narrative of them as, as gunslingers and, and detectives and <laughs> saving the world. I think that, you know, they, they, rather than criticizing for that, I want to be inspired by that and just put other people in that position with them. I've gone out with some very cute um, white, white middle class men, and, and some of them even said they were straight. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. But that was so interesting, and the response from the press was really interesting because now okay. everybody's about diversity, 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 and we were doing it right back then. One last question: You're, you're a passionate advocate of Black Pride. Uh, yes. So you you value intersectionality very much. I remember my first Pride march in 1987. Now, what I have to explain is that for Greece, 1987 in terms of attitudes to queer people, think Stonewall 1969. Oh, yeah. We're about 20 years behind. Yeah. I was taken there by an older lesbian woman. There were about 30 of us there. We were kettled by the police and would have been beaten to a pulp but for the support of trans sex workers in that area who fought like lions to protect us. Now, those small numbers meant a kind of unity, you know? And I see arguments erupting now between sections of the community, and I feel gutted, like genuinely gutted, like like my sister and brother are fighting with each other. But is the fact that we're now big enough and strong enough to subdivide and argue amongst ourselves, actually, weirdly, a sign of progress. Yes. Equality means the equal opportunity to be idiots. And uh, and so we've got them, and we're taking that. That's <laughs> going to happen. I know exactly what you're talking about in Greece, because actually my first equity job, so went back when you had to be an equity to be an actor, yeah. was in 1980 in Greece. I was at the Delfinario Theatre for Oh, for how summer. brilliant. Yes. And so we went to Placa every night, all the, the gay, the gay yeah, dancers, yeah, yeah. And, and we saw our Greek boyfriends be arrested and taken away um, regularly. So mm. I saw absolutely that whole Stonewall thing acting out there then. So I, 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 my heart is with you on that. But I, I digress. Yes, I think that um, we are fighting with each other, which is foolish. And um, and but that's how the power structure works. It gets you to turn on each other instead of turning on the structure. Mm. That's why I'm passionate about people starting to use it. I, I use empathy in my work and um, and try and ask questions and not judge. That's the way forward. And I know that that's why art works. When people, I love when people come and see a show of mine that's about homeless kids and they go, my God, I completely related to them. I completely see them as different people now on. That's the job. And that's what we can do. And as queer people, it should be really good at that. Um, but of course, we're just like everybody else. And equality mm. has shown us that, that we are exactly like everybody else. And now what we have to do is try and be better. And we can do it. Every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track. They go straight on the playlist and the link is in your show notes. Ricky Beadle Blair, what's yours and why do you love it? Packs and Potions by Hazy. He's he's just such (laughs) a great voice. I love that he's reclaiming um, this music in his own voice because the whole point of of, uh, music of black origin and kind of grime and everything is to be authentic and be real to who you are and where you're from. 
and he doesn't pretend to be anything but where he's from. He's a Liverpudlian boy who's on the streets and is and um and he speaks in that voice and he speaks to those stories and it's a great bop. You just want to move as soon as you hear it. Now, the doctor will see you now. This is going to hurt is the BBC's take on Adam Kay's gut-wrenching memoir about his time working as an NHS doctor. Be warned, this seven-part series is no one born every minute, but an unflinching look into the lives of frontline workers on and beyond an Obs and Gynae ward. Ben Wishaw and producer Alex Reese lookalike takes the lead <laughs> as Adam Kay, but never mind the nepotism, what did we think of it? Here's the trailer. This is Obs and Gynae. You're generally sailing the ship alone. A ship that's massive and on fire and no one's had the time to teach you how to sail. It's literally life or death, yeah. I'd say this is going very well. Hi, I'm Adam, one of the doctors. I was supposed to be having the water better. You never know, one of the pipes might come down. Welcome to the NHS. After his book and comedy tour, Kay received many complaints from the parents of young doctors saying that he was turning their children off medicine. <laughs> Kay said that if they worried that a book would turn them off medicine, then medicine would certainly turn them <laughs> off medicine. Sean, could you stomach all the squelching and surgery? Um, I have to come in here and presume that I am the only person in this podcast that has had a cesarean section. I mean, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, guys. Um, so... In some respects, I found this really difficult to watch because it is, I think you use the word unflinching, Yelena, and obviously they're not really doing that surgery. Surely Ben Wishaw didn't train to be a surgeon while preparing for this role, but it does look real and there is blood. There's lots of blood and there is bits and there's stitching up and there is, as you say, squelching, the sound effects, the Foley artists are doing a good job on this one. So in some respects, and you know how much, I just shouldn't say how much I love Ben Wishaw, but we know I love him. It's great to watch him, but I found it difficult to watch. I found it really quite hard because it's about his job, but it's also about the infrastructure of the NHS. It's about the architecture of the NHS, but also in this uh, modern way that we see it, this is about the infrastructure and architecture of the BBC. And actually just watching it, knowing that there are those parallels there, I I found it quite hard thinking... Mm. Are we using entertainment as watching two massive institutions being destroyed from within? What do we do about that? And it is unrelenting in that in that way. And so I watched it fairly seriously. I thought it would. I thought I would have a more sort of entertaining take on it, but actually, I took it really quite to heart. No pun intended. Mm, I was exactly the same. I thought it was quite a realistic mm. anthem to the underfunded, overstretched NHS, mm. which is currently facing, as we know, unprecedented waiting lists. But the book has sold over 2.5 million copies now in 37 languages and Kay himself created, wrote and exec produced this seven-part series on the so-called Brats and Twats ward. Are there things in there that only the doctor himself could possibly know? Yeah, I think that's what's so frightening about it because you do put your life in the hands of doctors. Of course you do. And in something like it's in the neonatal ward, it is a life and death situation. And it starts, you're bang on 
you're not sort of led in by the hand. It starts with actually quite terrifying things that are happening on the ward. Mm. And so you're feeling for the character, Adam himself, who you know is a real character, but you're also really feeling for the real people who have had to go through these procedures and it's touch and go. And it's incredibly frightening having a baby. And what's wonderful is it shows how incredibly frightening it is. Mm. Um, so, yes, maybe my experience did because I had quite a traumatic birth did actually bear something on the way that I watched this. It's a very fourth wall breaking diary series. We see his despair at the patient who wants to eat her own placenta because it's natural and dogs do it. And then he notes <laughs> that dogs also hump the furniture. Um, or the woman whose vagina sucks up a kinder egg, which has an engagement ring inside. <laughs> Alex, what did you make of Ben Wishaw's performance? Did you think he was quite funny? So, OK, so let me declare an interest here. So I love Adam Kay. I cooked for his anniversary dinner, for during which he proposed to his boyfriend. Oh my gosh! So, <laughs> Not with a so, kid, right? <laughs> so I, I, I probably found it quite bizarre mm. watching someone else playing him. Um, I, I mean, I thought Adam won't mind me saying this. He's a very funny man, but he's also quite morose. Okay. And so I thought I thought Wisher captured that just brilliantly. This this sort of sense of just being knocked from pillar to post the whole time, but just battling on. Mm. And it's exhausting, isn't it? When you're watching it, he doesn't get a break, does he? And we as a viewer don't get a break. And we as a viewer put ourselves in the shoes of the patients and thinking, oh, my God, I don't want this overworked, um, uh, you know, person who hasn't slept in, mm-hmm. in, in three days making life and death decisions mm-hmm. on my health. But that's, you know, that's what it is, warts and all. And so mm. I found it slightly out of body experience watching it. I, I absolutely loved it. What I found was really interesting that the book is probably 70% funny, 30% comic or tragic. Okay. The series is probably the reverse. And I think I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm saying that as simply a function of a different medium. Mm. Because when you're reading the book, actually, your companion is Adam's wit. And you don't have to look at the blood and guts and hear the squelching. And, you know, you just read his funny description of it. And when you transpose that to a visual medium, it was always going to be a very different animal. And I think it's all the stronger for that, actually, that it is a different mm-hmm. animal, that they haven't tried to make it scrubs, that they actually they've tried to make it, you know, call the midwife only real. And I loved it. I, I, I absolutely, I, I think he's terrific. And hopefully he will hear this yes. and say what he always says about good reviews, they were always my favourite. Yes, I've noticed that on his Twitter, actually. <laughs> Every single can you come on the show as well? Yes. Just saying, we'd love to have you. Episode six is probably my favourite because it really puts the difference between public and private healthcare in very sharp relief. But Alex, Adam's clearly from a much posher background than most of his patients. Do you think his asides ever come off a bit arrogant or judgmental? I don't know. I mean, it's authentic. Mm. And I think anything that's authentic has truth in it and has value because of that. So, yeah, maybe sometimes he's arrogant, maybe sometimes he's judgmental. But at the same time, you know, you're seeing you're seeing a realistic uh, painting of a of a person, mm. warts and all. And so for that, I think it's 
terrific. You know, why would you um, sanitize it in some way and make him more right on than than he actually is? Well, it reflects that gallows humour that every single doctor I've ever met has. Yeah. It's so like being in hospital yeah. watching <laughs> things. I mean, it is so good. It, I want to ask, Ricky, you've not seen it. I want to ask, do you think Ben Whishaw is, is our Dirk Bogard? Is this Doctor in the House? <laughs> I think Ben Whishaw can literally play anything. He's just amazing. And um, I mean, besides being like insanely cute, <laughs> he is just so gifted. And um, so, yes, our Dirk Bogard. But I think he's our Meryl Streep. I think he just can, <laughs> you know, I just think he delivers every single time. He, to yeah. me, is the... I mean, I love this. I love the book, so I'm really looking forward to seeing this. He, uh, he just like he is like a neon sign saying, "Watch this," because everything he does is great. Although he's still to play a happy person, as far as I know. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> even, even maybe that happy. will be. Paddington was quite happy. <laughs> that's true. Maybe that's true. But he's animated there, you see. <laughs> So they can make the face look happy. Okay, <laughs> I, 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 I will now have to build my career up and write a great part for, for Ben in which he's happy for you. Well, why don't you write him being a podcast host and then he'll have to do some research, <laughs> Come my way, Ben. I can change you. Now, beyond Ben Whishaw, I'd love to know what you all thought of the supporting cast because Alex Jennings is also in it as Adam's domineering boss. This country's Ashley Maguire's there as Miss Horton. Alex, uh, what did you think of some of the big names? I think the the term ensemble is sort of banded about quite lightly, but I think this is truly an ensemble piece. There isn't a false note. I mean, the people who play the supervising nurses, each with their own personality, each with their own humour, it just creates such a vivid environment. And one thing that I noticed as a a sort of theatre person is how actively they listen. And and Ricky will support me in that as a theatre director. It's just a delight Mm -hmm. to break away from the typical way in which uh, British television is usually shot with over-the-shoulder reaction notes when the other actor isn't even there, really, (laughs) to a, a, you know, wide frames and two shots of people talking to each other and reacting to each other because... What I find is as audience, both in the theatre and when I watch these things that are properly shot, the moment one person starts to say something, my eyes automatically go to the other person because I want to know how they Mm -hmm. react to it. That's the interesting Mm -hmm. bit. And it does that just brilliantly at every level. What about you, Yelena? Did anyone really kind of grab you and stand out? Yes, I think Ambika Mod just absolutely shone as Shruti, who's the young junior doctor starting out on the ward. I mean, myself, many of my friends are now in their final year of medicine and lots of them have been working on emergency wards throughout COVID. And they've shared similar stories of the everyday mundanity of life throughout, really. Mm. Um, I've heard absolute horror stories of them cleaning up faecal matter (laughs) and being vomited on and absolutely everything you can imagine. But also she has to manage so much. There's the pressure of her exams and at the same time, she's, you know, going into these conversations with parents telling them that they've miscarried. And the unbelievable pressure on her really comes to a climax as the series continues. And I just thought she was so, so fantastic mm, mm. and really captured how when you're so involved in your work professionally, it becomes your personality and things in your life just 
yeah. just pass you by, whether it's the pizza date afterwards that you forget about. People won't let you forget it. Yeah. In any case, I mean, my brother-in-law is an A&E doctor. Or he's also an oncologist, mm-hmm. but he does shifts at A&E. And there isn't a, a, a dinner he goes to or he's just walking down the street when we're back home in Greece and people know that he's a doctor. He's literally stopped by everyone and shown stuff like shown boils on their arm or whatever and asked, you know, talk you make symptoms and asked to, <laughs> yeah. to diagnose them on a street corner. So they're never really off, you know. Exactly. I think we'll all be coming away from this very different patients and keeping Kinder Eggs away from any of our <laughs> <Much> nice. <laughs> So would we would we recommend the series then? Oh yes. Absolutely. Now, our colleague Andrea Harrison is away this week, but he has found a tune to recommend, and here he is. Hello, it's Andrew here. I might be on my week off, but I have got a record to recommend for the podcast for once. Listeners, if you can cast your ears back to the glory days of Britpop, you may well remember Dubstar, the fantastic electronic pop act from the northeast, the Smiths with synths, St. Etienne if they'd grown up in Newcastle, basically all my favourite things. The hits, Stars and Not So Manic Now showcased a lovely, beautiful, creamy voice with from uh, Sarah Blackwood. And now they're back, back, back. The dancer duo of Sarah and Chris Wilkie, and they've got this epic single out, Token. Is an absolutely colossal Tears on the Dance Floor's job about later-in-life romance. It's produced by Stephen Haig of Pet Shop Boys and True Faith fame, so I feel like I've basically ordered this to my own specifications. And it's from their new album, too, which is coming out on the 6th of May. Best of all, they are letting us play the whole thing on the podcast, so pay attention, music business. This is the way to do it, to get to uh, influential audiences like the Culture Bunker. Anyway, have a listen. It's on the playlist, too, of course. I absolutely love this. This is Token by Dubstar. Be that 
bacon and legs. You'll get it in a minute. Do you believe in monsters? Do you oft ponder the divide between human and animal? Do you sometimes think you might be a giant spider? Or perhaps a screaming pope? Especially when you turn on the news. Well, it's February and here at Culture Bunker Art Corner, all the big news shows are coming out. And Yelena and I squeaked with delight when we heard this. You may have heard her piece last week on the visionary Vincent van Gogh. Yelena and I donned our berets and saw two of the recent big shows, Francis Bacon at the Royal Academy and Louise Bourgeois at the Haywood. Both in London, although we are willing to go further afield, by the way, invites on a postcard. <laughs> With titles like Man and Beast for Bacon and The Woven Child for Bourgeois, we saw a thread. Here lie monsters, we thought. So what on earth do Bacon and Bourgeois have in common? Firstly, Yelena, tell us about Francis Bacon and Man and Beast. Yep, so Man and Beast covers works from across Bacon's 50-year career, from his earliest works all the way up to his final painting. But this exhibition really focuses on his fascination with animals and their movement and how his own artistic approach really blurred the boundaries between what figures were human and which ones were animal. Some of them are barely recognisable as either. And he does this in order to show how our primal instincts are always there bubbling beneath the surface. Absolutely. I I, I realised as I was writing up my notes, bacon. <laughs> it's so obvious. Well, he did say he had a quote in the exhibition, Sean. If you remember that we are all meat, we are all potential yes. carcasses, <laughs> and that it is about meat. It is yeah. about so. Humans look like hunched forms. There are humans next to dogs, next to monkeys. Yep. There, as we say, there are the screaming popes and the first painting that we see, which I think is head one. Yes correct me if I am wrong, yeah. is almost unrecognisable, but you think it may be a head and then you see teeth. Yeah. But you don't know what sort of head it is and if it is animal or if it is human. What were the standouts for you, Yelena, in this? Well, bull semen and Nazis was my response when I arrived <laughs> back in the office after we went and the producers asked me... It was me a if fun the... morning. Yeah, it was a fun morning. Is that, sorry, is that two paintings? One called bull semen and one called Nazis? <laughs> well, <laughs> this that was is my, important to me. my potted summary. It was actually a triptych if we want to go into detail. Um, <laughs> I think the big picture of this exhibition is really Mm. to encourage us to reassess uh, Francis Bacon in the light of his works and and using animals. So like you said, Sean, we really see the human figures and the animal figures merging together. Very famous works of his were encouraged to reconsider through the lens of animals. So his, you know, figures that are coming out from underneath a cloak, he talks about as snakes, like shedding their skin. And also to understand his very contradictory relationship with animals. There's this parallel love and harm that's happening on all times because for instance he loved dogs and he painted dogs but he really suffered from mm. asthma and he couldn't be around them um, which links a lot to his childhood and his very uh, warped mm. connection with mm. his own sexuality and I think it's interesting you pointed out Van Gogh earlier as well because I think this exhibition really delves much deeper than the hammer horror that we might expect of his works in the first place and reevaluates him as this sacred monster of Soho, as he's so-called, the man who proclaimed that he wanted champagne for his real friends and real pain for his sham friends. Um, we understand how he kind of understood his own homosexuality as a kind of bestiality, maybe as well. Mm, mm. Um, and also him as a British, more uh, more of a European, I would say, than a British artist, and really looking at his process how he used animals and used, you know, he'd go on safari or he'd go to the zoo to study them and, and so much of the exhibition focuses on that. So on to Bourgeois. 
Again, the similarities. Mm. Lots of monsters, spiders, as you've put it, Sean, copulating couples. Yeah, we see humans as spiders, humans as fragments of bodies, but there's a lot more textile work in this exhibition. And that's because Bourgeois herself was the daughter of tapestry restorers. And where she differs, I would say, from Bacon is that she went back to textiles in her later life as a means of trying to reconcile with that past. There's much more of an emphasis on repair, whereas I think Bacon was a bit Mm. more destructive in that Mm, sense. mm. Um, But yeah, I think the most common overlap I actually noticed was the sense of being trapped. There's a lot of coffins, actually, and Mm. cages in Bourgeois' work. And we saw that a lot throughout the Bacon exhibition too. Yes, the spider, which is meant to be protective and it's meant to be female strength, Mm. is also really terrifying and is a cage as well within that What I liked about Bourgeois and Bacon, two artists who are not usually seen in parallel, is this idea of what, how to reproduce skin and flesh and meat. And she does that too. And one of the first things we see is this tree that looks like an amputated torso into which she stuck a hand, Mm, mm. a wooden mannequin's hand. And it just is, you know, it took my breath away. It is really unflinching. Where Bacon is so nihilistic and there is that element of despair. He believes in nothing in the end, and, and you realise that. He is just trying to work it all out. A bit like what Ricky was saying earlier, we're just trying to work mm. things out through art. But with Louise Bourgeois, I was absolutely blown away, but I thought there is some semblance of hope. She's trying to work it out and make peace and repair it. And the repairing with the sewing threads, with ideas of what needles can do, they can do harm, but they can also stitch things back together. There's a lot of family stuff, and there's also some childbirth stuff, so it links in with Adam Kay. Mm. It's there's some there's some idea of redemption with Louise Bourgeois, which I absolutely loved. And there's an idea of no redemption at all with Bacon. But I love that. Well, I agree with you. But I also think that there's one series in the Bacon exhibition. Mm. It comes about halfway through and it's a series. It's a triptych of three bullfights. And it's the first time they've ever actually been shown together all in the round. And it's incredible. Mm. And that for me Mm. is the real high point, the culmination of his work. And it goes back to what we were just saying there about using art to answer a question that you can't answer. Because that series of bullfights is all about looking at Nazi Germany. Germany, the rise mm. of populism. Mm. Yes, mm. there is bull semen on it as well. I will, <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> but still, um, no, I, I do yeah. think that there is a kind of historical reckoning going on in his works as well, especially in that really productive middle period. As you're saying, they're both very rude at points yeah. as well. <laughs> Rather delighted. <laughs> this is the stuff that the children will be going, I don't want to look at this. <laughs> yeah. We would very, very strongly recommend these. If you're not in London, it's the type of thing you come down for a weekend and go and see them. Definitely. They're the big ticket shows, but they're brilliantly curated. I thought they were just so fantastically thoughtful. Mm-hmm. They can't just chuck things on a wall anymore, can they, Yelena? No, I thought that. There were very evocative descriptions, quite limited in the information that it gives you, so it's lots of space for your own interpretation and fantastic mm. mix of new discoveries mm. and old favourites. Absolutely. So that's your tip from Culture Bunker Art Corner. Now, as regular listeners know, we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time. Ricky, what have you chosen and why? You know, obviously, I'm sure everyone says this. It's impossible because you have so many <laughs> and, your, and your moods change. And, you know, I so wanted to choose a Joan Mitchell or a Ricky Lee Jones or a Stevie Wonder. or a, You know, there's so many great songwriters and I'm a real songwriter fan. 
but the song that just came to me that I just never get bored of it is Love and Affection by Joan Armatradin. Um, and uh, she was a singer, she is a singer songwriter who has worked tirelessly through all this time. And, um, she uh, was, uh, was one of the few black British pop stars in an era where there just weren't any. Her songwriting is still wonderful and her classics really stand up. So that became hard. So I just chose the biggest hit by her, which is Love and Affection, which just has terrific lyrics. It doesn't rhyme and it breaks all those rules. It rhymes when it wants to. And it's a conversation piece and you put it on headphones and you feel like you're in someone's brain and in their heart and soul. I just love it. And I love her voice. And Love and Affection goes straight onto the playlist. And lastly, TV and the Magnificent Andersons. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Pamela and Tommy is a Hulu series out now on Disney Star in the UK. It stars Lily James and Sebastian Stan as Pam and Tommy, respectively, and Seth Rogen as the most disgruntled carpenter in Los Angeles. Tip do not employ this man. It's based on the exhaustive Rolling Stone feature about the infamous and nay legendary Tommy and Pam sex tape. The feature was by Amanda Chicago Lewis. It's also based on Tommyland, which is Tommy's own memoir. It tells the true story of the contractor Rand Gautier, who sought revenge and obviously considered it a dish best served hot. (laughs) (laughs) Let's listen to the trailer. Please welcome Pamela Anderson. Know anything at all about Mr. Lee before you met him? I knew he was the drummer for Motley Crue. Did you find him attractive? I liked his smile. I still do. We're so good together, Pamela. To everlasting love. We have recently come into possession of a piece of material. It's like we're seeing something we're not supposed to be seeing. Nobody's ever getting rich off a celebrity sex tape. What if we sold it someplace nobody could find us? A website. A what site? It's this thing on the computer. People will order the tape directly from us. Wow, you are so hot. What the hell is this? I won't do. Alex, this is effectively on Disney for UK viewers. Is this where they start to get really annoyed with Frozen and think, come on, we've got to put some other stuff out? Because this is hot stuff for Disney. Yeah. Um, I mean, Star is a sort of monogram under the Disney Plus umbrella. And mm. um, and it's where they have uh, things like The Walking Dead, because they're now doing all that family of, uh, of series, which I love because I'm, you know, zombie stuff. I'm a big, big fan. Um, weirdly, I found it quite Disney-fied. I mean, even though it's rude, okay. even though it's got a talking mm. penis, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, I that. found that the talking penis was almost like the traditional non-human sidekick <laughs> in, like in every Disney movie. <laughs> in every Disney movie. Yes, he might as well be <laughs> Cogsworth from, <laughs> from Beauty and the Beast. So like Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> Yes. Um, Pinocchio's nose, isn't it? Jiminy Dickens. I mean, I watched it with a lot of interest. Can I just say they've been 
quite unkind to Tommy. His penis is considerably bigger than that, um, judging from that video. I just want to get that out there. I just just want to put that out. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We had bacon. We had bourgeois. No one dumps on you because all you ever talk about is art. Now we're on my field of expertise, which is dick. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. Also, listeners, you can't say you don't get a theme with our shows. Every single thing has been about meat today. (laughs) So the tale is told from Rand's point of view. And Rand, the real life Rand, who did steal this sex tape, was also a porn star. So it gets really complicated. Rand isn't paid for his work by Tommy. Tommy puts a gun to his head at least one or two times. I think it may be three. And that's how Rand has this enormous grudge and decides to go and steal some of their stuff. Doesn't realise there's a tape at first, but then thinks Kerching. Alex, are we laughing at Pam and Tommy in this? Are they figures of ridicule because their life is so extreme? Or where do our sympathies lie? I have to say, from the, the first episode, I thought, yes, we are taking the mickey out of them. But then in the second episode, it actually turns on a penny and becomes really quite a sweet love story um, between them. I, I, it, I'm not even being funny. It's actually quite endearing. And, uh, you know, I thought the actors were lovely. And I thought the story as it shaped up was lovely. In terms of storytelling, I think it's really smart, actually, to start from the contractor and the the videotape and then go into their relationship. Because otherwise, I think we would lose all the exposition, all the difficult stuff Mm. that you need to establish at the start by Mm. going, oh, she really looks like Pamela Anderson. She barely appears in the first episode. You you see a glimpse Mm. of her like twice. Um, And so, actually, they keep that for later on, for when they show us them, and concentrate Mm -hmm. on the the, uh, big dramatic point that's coming. So that Mm -hmm. when you are then watching their relationship develop, you know that this big thing is coming down the road. And actually, I felt really bad for them. You know, I felt like it was a real invasion of privacy, like, you know, what they... What they had was passionate and sexual, but in no way to be laughed at. Mm. It's the sort of thing that had a French um, 70s or 60s director had directed it would be looking at it as a sort of masterpiece about the, you know, the gorgeousness of uh, young love. But because it's on a handheld camera, it becomes, Mm. you know, dirty and tawdry and cheap and actually Mm. why does that why does that the medium change our perception of this story which is just about two young people who are really into each other having Mm. really good sex with each other being unable to keep their hands off each other do we learn anything about celebrity culture, Alex? Because we now know that a sex tape is a thing. There is Kim's sex tape. There is Paris Hilton's sex tape. Not that I have watched all of these. I mean, this obviously set a precedent, but this also set a precedent, surely, for what we have as Instagram culture, Have the idea of celebrity. Mm. Everything gets you know, you know, cross-processed and more and more colourful and saturated from this point. Again, I think it's something that's facilitated and that grew as the technology around it grew. Last week, we were talking about the Van Gogh exhibit. 
and I went to see it, and I was really struck by the fact that these were selfies. Mm. I mean, mm. this was an exhibition. If had he been around today, he would have been prolific on Instagram. These mm. were absolutely him announcing to the world that look at me, I'm getting better. Look at me, I'm working again. You know, I'm trying this top, but I don't think it looks, I'm trying this background, but I don't like how that looks. So I'm <laughs> going to try this top with that background. Yeah. And there yeah. was something, and, and I'm not saying that obviously to minimize his work. I'm just saying that, you know, this was a medium that was available only to very talented painters back then. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to today and everyone with a phone can sort of do that, mm. can put themselves on display and create their own narrative. And I think that's hugely powerful and hugely democratic, actually, to be able to shape the story of yourself that you put out in the world and why this works and why this is actually it becomes almost a horror movie as you watch it more and more, mm. is that someone intervened and took control of their narrative and actually superimposed his narrative on their love story. Well, that he is indeed the male gaze. Yeah. He is yeah. the personification that is of that. Absolutely. And it's about that. Ricky, would you see this? Is this the kind of thing that you're in downtime, if you've got any, you're going to watch? Yes, it would. Um, especially Alex has really sold it to me. Yes, I would. And I'm really um, interested in what you said about about self-portraits. You know, uh, that's really very interesting because I'm a person who finds the kind of constant self-portraiture on Instagram a bit irritating. Like my, I have friends who I love dearly, but they take the same picture mm -hmm. of themselves walking down the same street to work every single day. Look at my lipstick. Is it cute? Well, you know, look at my, I'm wearing a beret today. And I'm kind of like, why every day the same picture in the same gym mirror and why? And then I realize actually what they're doing is an art. It could actually be it just made me realize that what they're doing could be one of those great exhibitions where you, you know, with that family where they took pictures of themselves every year yes. or every year. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then you see them actually get younger and older as, as the waves of, of aging and progress. Um, mm. it's not like a, it's not as linear as you think because it depends on your mood and so mm. I'm, I'm, it's made mm. me really really think about that because I, I, I've always thought that Van Gogh was doing selfies but I've always accepted those because he's Van Gogh and, and mm -hmm. it, that was really really interesting it's made me want to and sex tapes are an interesting thing as well that you're making kind of piece of art about your love making and how that, that how that reads depending on the judgment around you and how that makes you feel yeah it's exhibitionism of a different kind. I'm actually direct. The play I'm directing in, in Coventry right now is about teenagers. At one point, one of them, part of it, it's not the whole story, but part of it, uh, so one of them shares uh, a picture of himself having sex and, and his, to his friend and someone's with her and they share it to everybody. He goes from a sex positive, free spirit to being absolutely devastated and ashamed and just the context of what he's doing. And then he says what was going on in the, in the video is different from what you saw. Do you know what I mean? And mm. that shifting mm. thing. And so you made me really see the sex tape in a different way, actually, thinking about that. So I'd love to watch it. One question I do have, Alex. Do you remember when British films had cartoon sexishness rather than sexiness, sexishness? So prick up your ears, wish you were here. I was trying to think about this. Rita Sue and Bob 2, an idea uh, oh, of what yeah, British yeah, film yeah. would be. Personal services. Yes, absolutely. Very good example. But now it's a bit Richard Curtis. It's a bit Potatoes in Guernsey. 
have we become slightly sort of disnified in our portrayal of this? Is this more of what we need? Because the British used to be terribly good at this. Even Carry On films are, are good, many of them. So as a, as a non-Brit, all I, all I would add is that um, although I get what you're saying about the mm-hmm. portrayal of sex in those films, it mm-hmm. always seemed to me also a little bit dysfunctional. Like, you know, sex was a funny, icky thing. Um, oh, yes. You know, yes. that you mustn't take seriously. In many ways, uh, British cinema sort of went from one dysfunction to another dysfunction. <laughs> Ma- maybe there we'll you. now find a, a sort of more balanced way of, of portraying um, you know, carnal lust yeah. in a way that neither <laughs> disnifies it nor yes. uh, trivialises it. You know, because it's a, it's important and again, stuff. If ben it makes the world go round. Ben Whistle <laughs> will make sex real for us. <laughs> Thank you for that. Really. <laughs> Lovely thought. And with that, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we decide to pay our builders in a timely and polite manner, just in case, eh? So, Sean, <laughs> what's your closing time chatter? Mine is, I'm afraid it's another RIP. Closing time chatter comes a bit RIP corner in a way. Um, Betty Davis, I just want to pay tribute in the one minute I have to say thank you for being Betty Davis. Thank you for bringing your Betty Davis into the world. She died last week. And I absolutely loved her. And what's so wonderful about social media, and we know there are not so wonderful bits about it, is that you get a real coming together. When something really awful happens, you realise how many people love something that you love and that many people held such a candle to her. And she instigated so much in terms of black Afrofuturism. So many different artists today have always gone back to listen to someone like that. She was so strong. And as a woman at that time, you had to be bloody strong. I just absolutely adore her. And I just wanted to say how much it was so heartening to see how much that she will be missed, but how many people just loved her too. So RIP Betty Davis, the Queen. What about you, Ricky? What's your closing time chatter? It's the rise of the female director. The Maggie Gyllenhaal's extraordinary work on The Lost Daughter and also, of course, the, the kind of epic power of the dog where people, where female directors seem to be looking at things in this kind of, and they don't want the characters, especially the female characters, they're not trying to make them sympathetic. They're not trying to make them malleable. They're trying to make them complicated and problematic and human and relatable and, and are incredibly empathic while they do that. So the way that the characters, all the characters in Power of the Dog, especially Benedict Cumberbatch's character, is treated is so complex. And I feel like that, that female directors have been the ones doing that with films like Rocks and so on. And I feel that it's helping male directors be better. And on that, also, Rebecca Hall's passing. If you, yes, yes, if you haven't it's amazing. seen that bloody brilliant film. Um, what about you, Yelena? Mine is one final London recommendation after Bacon and Bourgeois. If you're interested in seeing some fragments of the Berlin Wall in a shopping centre, then I recommend that you head down to Lewisham. It's the last weekend of Departures, which is currently on show at the wonderful, wonderful Migration Museum, which, yes, is located in Lewisham Shopping Centre, just opposite Sainsbury's. (laughs) They've completely revamped the retail space and turned it into an airport lounge with multiple terminals to explore the history of 500 years of emigration from the UK. Very much. It's a fascinating, fascinating place to go. Mm, wow. Amazing stuff. And Alex, what is yours? 
Um, so I'm going to bring the tone down again. Um, <laughs> so I've been watching uh, proper popcorn stuff uh, on Netflix. The woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. Ah, <laughs> so many capital letters. I love that's it. the title of the thing. Um, with uh, with Kristen Bell, you know, from The Good Place. Not all the reviews have been glowing, it's fair to say. Some people have hated it. It basically takes the mickey out of that genre of neo-noir, not everything is Mm. as it seems. Mm. And I think the the problem with it, which is what I glean from the reviews, is that it does it with such a straight face. It's really difficult to know when it's being serious and when it's taking the mickey sometimes. <laughs> and the plot of it in that genre is actually really good. So it would work for a serious version of it as well, mm. which kind of wrong foots you a little bit as an audience because you don't know what bits to take seriously and what bits not to. But um, I found the whole thing, I inhaled it like popcorn <laughs> And uh, I found uh, the the laughter when it came was howling and me and my other half really enjoyed it. So I'd recommend that. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to Ricky Beadle Blair for joining us on The Culture Bunker. Oh, my pleasure. What an honour. <laughs> Don't forget you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. And one day the artist might even get paid. Take a note of those lovely tunes go to band camp buy the tunes that's what we say from myself Yelena and Alex and producer Alex Reese. thank you so much for listening we'll see you next week The Culture Punk was produced and presented by Yelena Sofronievich with Sean Pattenden and Alex Andre. the group editor was Andrew Harrison an audio production was by me Alex Reese. I'm available for Ben Wishaw impersonations at weddings, funerals, quinceañeras, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, stag do's, hen do's, and christenings. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>